This is your official good morning. Um, my name again is Patrick Eddington. I'm the a policy analyst in Homeland Security and Civil Liberties here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome all of you who are here in the Hayek Auditorium as well as those of you who are watching the webcast. I just want to uh, go over a very quick few housekeeping notes before we dive into our topic at hand. For those of you who are here in the Hayek Auditorium, the restrooms uh, are just outside here uh, towards the front across the spiral staircase as you go out. Um, after our second panel concludes, we will be serving lunch up on the second floor in our conference center. Um, and then finally, please turn off or place your cell phones in a non-noise-making mode for the duration of our uh, roughly two-hour event here. Now, I hope that you'll be relieved to learn that no drone surveillance will be conducted at this event, at least so far as I know. Today, we'll examine how yet another piece of dual-use technology, drones, or if you prefer the less ominous-sounding unmanned aerial vehicles, is altering how we work and play. At previous Cato events, the role of UAVs in the national security arena has been explored in some depth, but our forum today is the first time we're actually taking uh, an in-depth look at how this new technology is being used in the skies over America. I use the term dual-use advisedly because drones can either help law enforcement find lost hikers in the Grand Tetons, or be used by an unscrupulous neighbor as a flying remote-controlled peeping Tom. As the title of this gathering suggests, this technology comes with both the potential uh, promise and peril. Each of our panels today will explore that policy landscape, but from slightly different angles. We'll explore the commercial and private sector regulatory landscape during our second panel later this morning, which I will moderate. But our first panel will look at the issues arising out of the increasing use of drones by America's law enforcement community. Just over a year ago, the Department of Justice conducted an expert convening on this topic, bringing together participants from the law enforcement and civil liberties communities to discuss the challenges and the opportunities presented by law enforcement use of drone technology. I was one of the participants in the event, uh, and in fact, several of our panelists on this first panel we're also uh, key participants in that. Now, while we didn't agree on every aspect of potential police drone use, we did actually find a fair amount of common ground. Even so, uh, some key issues remain unresolved, and that sounds like a pretty good segue to introduce our first panel. Uh, Tim Edelman, who is uh, seated over uh, to my right, is an attorney at the law firm of LeClaire Ryan over in Annapolis, where his practice includes clients in the healthcare and aviation fields. Tim is an instrument-rated flight instructor, advises clients on matters related to privacy concerns associated with the operation of UAVs, and he advises law enforcement agencies on the regulatory requirements of UAV operations. Seated on the very far side of the podium over here, or on the stage over here, is Jay Stanley, the ACLU Senior Policy Analyst at the group's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. In addition to his work on privacy and civil liberties issues associated with drone, Jay also has extensive experience in dealing with another hot technology issue, body-worn cameras, and his research on that topic is absolutely must-reading. Christy Lane Scott is the Deputy Director of the Office of Privacy and Civil Liberties at the Department of Justice. Christy has previously served in DOJ as an Assistant United States Attorney and an Attorney Advisor. Since its creation in 2006, OPCL has been the one-stop shop for privacy and civil liberties issues within DOJ as they affect the handling of personal information. Now, as I noted in my impromptu uh, in introduction to this, we do have one unscheduled uh, change. Don Roby, who is the training program manager at the Airborne Law Enforcement Association, was scheduled to be with us on the panel today, but unfortunately he's taken ill and will not be joining us. 
Uh, that's the bad news. The great news, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that uh, Michael O'Shea, the Senior Law Enforcement Program Manager at the National Institute of Justice, uh, has joined us today. And Michael was one of the uh, principal uh, individuals involved in DOJ's expert convening that I met, uh, mentioned previously. And he'll have uh, more to say on that uh, as we go forward. Our panel moderator is situated right here in the center, my colleague uh, from Cato, Matt Feeney, a policy analyst whose portfolio looks an awful lot like Jay Stanley's, uh, quite frankly. In fact, just 11 months ago, Cato published Matthew's paper on police body-worn cameras entitled Watching the Watchman, Best Practices for Police Body Cameras, a report I strongly recommend that you read in light of the ongoing controversies surrounding officer-involved shootings around the nation. Matthew also has Cato's first report on domestic drones in the publication pipeline, and I'm sure he'll be drawing on his research this morning as he guides our first panel through the discussion. So without further ado, I'll turn the proceedings over to Matthew. Great. Well, thank you, Pat, and thank you all for uh, being here. The, the speakers have been introduced, so I won't spend too much time uh, rehashing that. Uh, the, the plan here is for each of the speakers to spend about uh, 10 to 12 <coughs> minutes on uh, their comments, and then we'll turn over to you uh, for a 15-minute Q&A before we uh, have a brief break before Pat's uh, panel. The, I know we had uh, Mr. O'Shea, uh, I don't know if your, your presentation is loaded and ready, because we can have you speak first, if that's okay with you, and then uh, Jay, Tim, and Christy. It's fine. Great, thank you. Okay, as he's already mentioned, my name is Mike O'Shea, and if you like my presentation, it's great because I just came up with this. If you don't like it, it's because it was a last-minute thing, and it's not my fault. Um, I've worked for DOJ now for about 16 years. Prior to that, I taught at the State of Maryland Law Enforcement Academy. Prior to that, I was a sheriff's deputy in, in Topeka, Kansas. Um, I mainly work technology issues. I've worked, uh, I, I'm responsible for all the uh, body-worn, uh, not cameras, body armor, and I'm also responsible for the, and the compliance testing program for body armor for the U.S., for the U.N., for NATO, DOD, and 34 other countries, including doing the surveillance testing of that body armor. That's when it's manufactured in 44 different countries across the world. I also have responsible for school safety technologies, uh, and I have responsibility for what's called the National Law Enforcement and Corrections Technology Center System, which is a nice short name that was given to us by Congress, so we have to keep it, uh, which provides technical assistance and support to public safety out in the field, and, the, and they do a couple of things, like if you've ever seen a, our technology magazine called TechBeat, I'm responsible for that, and our website, JustNet. And then I'm also responsible for both manned and unmanned aviation technologies. And most of the and aviation technologies we're currently working now at DOJ have to do, obviously, with unmanned aircraft systems, because that's sort of the topic of jour. We do, do do some manned aviation programs. We're currently coordinating with the State Department, supporting the Kenyan Wildlife Service, with uh, counter-poaching, counter-terrorism activities, with upgrading their existing technologies they have and their existing aircraft they have. Um, basically what I'm going to tell you, or hope to tell you. Um, and most of you hopefully know that NIJ, the National Institute of Justice, is part of what's called the Office of Justice Programs, which is a component of the U.S. Department of Justice. Um, there's what, 125,000 employees, and we represented about 1,500 of those. And most of our work is supporting federal, state, and local criminal justice agencies. We call them the three C's, cops, courts, and corrections. Um, and that's the kind of work we typically do. Uh, in NIJ specifically, we're sort of broken down in three areas. One is doing basic client behavioral research, uh, what kind of uh, crime-stopping programs work, which don't work. We have what's called the Investigative Forensic Science Division that does a lot of what's called the Crime and Lab Improvement Program programs. 
They look at DNA testing and new technologies within the forensic sciences. And then I work for what's called the Office of Science and Technology that looks at basically hard uh, technologies for public safety. Um, most of you probably already know this. We have a large constituency. Um, there's about 18,000 law enforcement agencies out there. And our biggest issue is we'll have, you know, biggest issue is most of the law enforcement agencies out there are small and rural. And they do a lot of research before they buy a new pickup truck or a new fishing boat, but not as much research when they buy technology for their agency. So we try to be that sort of consumer reports between them and the vendors to make sure they get the technologies that they need. Um, our aviation technology we established back in 2005, and we did it because I came back from a conference with small and rural law enforcement who basically said, I used to call the state police and they would fly a helicopter for me, or I'd call the National Guard and we'd look for marijuana fields, but then the state police didn't have money to fly their helicopter anymore, and the, 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 the uh, National Guard either got deployed or, or disbanded, so we were looking for a low-cost aviation asset that would get people up into, the, up into the eyes so they could look what's on the ground. And we actually started off using, believe it or not, this doesn't work on that screen, powered parachutes, which is that little cart up there on the left, and they cost us $11,000 each. And we put one in Ripon, uh, city of Ripon, California, and they're having a huge daytime burglary problem. And they flew this thing for about four hours each day, and they reduced their daytime burglary by 64%. We figured in the first week they probably paid for that, and then the lack of insurance claims for people whose houses were getting broken into. So we figured out low-cost technologies can support public safety. We sort of migrated from that to light sport aircraft, and we put several of those out across the country. And basically, we, we, the, the big solution we got out of that was if you have multiple agencies come together and share a resource, it makes it an affordable resource for all of them to use. Because most small and rural guys are not going to put a helicopter up or an airplane over their city 24-7, but they want to fly to look for missing people, amber alerts, silver alerts. They want to uh, take pictures of critical infrastructure, and that aircraft can do it. And it can do it for a lot of municipalities and share the resource and keep the cost down. We ended our program actually evaluating gyroplanes, which at first we looked at and we're kind of little, you know, that's not a helicopter. And they're like, no, no, it's a gyroplane. And it's technology has been around since 1919. And, and we got a little nervous about it first and we started learning how to fly them and, and use them and integrate them in law enforcement operations. And, and in our opinion, it's probably one of the better aircraft for law enforcement to use. It flies low, it flies slow, um, and it doesn't stall, which is a kind of unique concept for a small aircraft. We put several of those out across the country in testing. Um, our big job is basically to serve as a resource to the criminal justice community. When they have questions about technologies, they have questions about the implementation of UAS, that's kind of our role to, to, to be there to answer those questions for them. Basically what our role is in DOJ, and I'll let you talk more about that too, but we, we were involved in, in developing the presidential memorandum on uh, the use of UAS and also DOJ's policy on use of UAS that actually trickles down because of funding to state and locals. And we work with law enforcement, law enforcement organizations and associations like ALEA, Airborne Law Enforcement Association that Don Roby is a part of, and participate in their meetings and also participating in providing guidance for them. Um, UAS. The, the biggest issue we have with UAS right now in the United States is not that the technology can't be useful to law enforcement, it's that the law enforcement agencies don't know how to implement the technology. And there's a lot of different issues to use. And, and the most frustrating for, for, thing for me is when I get a call from a law enforcement agency that says, Mike, we want to buy a UAS, how would we use it? I don't know. <laughs> how, if you don't know how you're going to use the technology, you probably shouldn't be buying it. And we have sort of a mantra at DOJ that says, the mission must drive the technology, not the technology drive the mission. 
So it's really important that, that if you come to us and you start asking questions about UAS, you've already got an idea how it's going to enhance the mission that you already do. If you don't have that, you don't need the technology. And it doesn't matter, if it can be UAS, it can be anything. But if it's not going to enhance your mission or, or, or it's, it, it's not driving the mission, then you shouldn't probably buy that technology. Um, I already told you that. Um, I already told you that, I don't know if you realize that, most people, if you watch TV or you live in the DC area, you think every law enforcement agency has a helicopter, right? In reality, there's only about 300, 300 agencies in the, out of those 18,000 that have an uh, aviation unit. It's just because it's too expensive to fly them. A typical helicopter costs anywhere between two and $15 million, and hourly operations are anywhere between $500 and $1,500 an hour to operate. And that's a lot of money for a lot of small agencies. Um, the other issue is most of our officers, are, our departments are small and rural, and budgets are extremely tight. Is anybody here from a law enforcement agency that has a really good budget? And if so, are you hiring? No. There are a couple out there, believe it or not. Um, um, and I already told you that. And that's the other thing is, is people don't seem to understand is we don't buy technologies in public safety because they have to have a high return on investment. And in other words, you know, I hear cases where people say, well, we bought a UAS, you know, we did some research with it, it flew over the hill, and we just launched another one. I'm like, oh my gosh. They're like, what? You know, it's just, just money. And in our case, it's, it's money. And it has to have a shelf life, you know, and, and a lot of the concerns about public safety right now is the technology is so evolving, evolving right now that it keeps changing every day that they're afraid to buy it because they, they need something that can sit on a shelf and work for them for the next five years. And if they buy something now and tomorrow, the, the, the better newer version becomes available, they're going to have sort of buyer's remorse. Um, that's sort of the economy of scale, and UAS is pretty close to the bottom, but for the most part, uh, a powered parachute in some cases is actually cheaper. But, uh, you know, some of the agencies we're seeing using some of the really low-cost UAS technologies, the DJI Phantoms, the DJI Inspires, actually are cheaper than buying a, um, a powered parachute. Um, I'm not going to talk much about this because Christy's going to talk about this. But that talks about some of the, I, I usually put this up for law enforcement audiences because they think because it's a DOJ policy, it does, or, or a federal government policy, it doesn't apply to them, but it does if they receive federal funds for us to buy their UAS. Um, some of the research we've done, we're actually currently funding the Police Foundation to build an online database so that law enforcement can actually report how they're flying their UASs, the, the problems they've encountered. Um, it's going to also make it easier for them to, to, to basically report the flights that they're doing. We've also been looking at a lot at UAS to, to work motor vehicle accidents. You know, it's everybody, who, if you live in the D.C. area, you realize if there's an accident, life goes to heck. Um, so the idea is to be able to, to clear a scene quicker. Typically, it requires several hours to do, to do laser, uh, mark, uh, laser diagramming of an accident. We can actually use, use a UAS to do 3D diagramming of an accident in about five minutes. That's how long it takes. It's very quick and simple. And so I think that's pretty much the future for public safety. It's something that everybody can buy into. Anything that clears our roads quicker, I'm in favor of. I live across the Bay Bridge, so I'm really in favor of that. And I hate beach people, sorry. Um, some of the, the potential future effects that we're working on, the online, online knowledge-based testing program. We've got a, um, we have an online testing program that we're doing with the FAA so that it's easier for law enforcement officers to take the test online. We're doing that in conjunction with Filetzi. Um, we have a UAS selection consideration document. We want to make sure that law enforcement officers ask the right questions before they buy a UAS. We mentioned, uh, Patrick mentioned the expert convening panel that I hosted last year. 
Um, we've done a lot of market survey of existing and, and applicable U.S. technologies and what they can do for public safety. Um, and some of the other stuff you read up there, we're doing operational evaluations. Um, we've done a lot of roll call. We just re released a roll call video called Eye in the Sky. That's a, it's about a 10-minute video that talks about the use of UAS in public safety. And a lot of work that we're, we're trying to focus our work on now is the community acceptance of this technology. Uh, we're looking at some of the agencies have implemented, the successes they've had with their public, and the people who've tried to implement it, and the issues they ran into and what those were, so we can sort of address those issues beforehand to make sure that we're very transparent in the use of this technology. And with the time I have, that's the information I have, and I'll be available for questions later. Thanks. Thank you. It's logical sense for uh, Christy to give the next comments, if that's okay. And then we'll have Tim and Jay, do you mind finishing up? So, great, sure. thank you. So I think that that's a very nice segue into my presentation. Um, and before I get into the, the meat of that, I just want to thank the Cato Institute um, for inviting me to this really important event to discuss uh, matters of, of significant national security and law enforcement. And I think this provides an excellent opportunity um, to discuss some real meaningful issues. Um, Mike talked about some of the really concrete benefits of UAS use, um, including uh, kidnapping, search and rescue, um, just the practical and tangible benefits um, that law enforcement has as a result of UAS. Um, but as lawyers at the department, we're really sort of concerned about the legal framework. Um, and as a privacy and civil liberties expert, you know, we want to know um, what is the framework on which these UAS systems can operate. Um, one of the sort of important things to, to frame in this, this discussion, um, and some of the panelists may go into it, is this notion of counter UAS. Um, which I won't delve into too much, but I think it's important to note. And counter UAS really is sort of the destruction of a UAS that is used in a threatening um, way to potentially a DOD installation or some other public critical infrastructure. Um, but my remarks will be really sort of limited to DOJ's um, own use of UAS. So it's important to note that in February, um, February 15th of 2015, President Obama issued a presidential memorandum that was for the heads of all executive agencies um, that was really titled Promoting Economic Competitiveness While Safeguarding Privacy, Civil Liberties, Civil Rights, and Domestic Use of UA UAS. And so I think the administration really understood um, that there was a, a need to balance in a very thoughtful way privacy and civil liberties with the, with the benefits of using UAS. And so this presidential mem memorandum out outlined very um, important privacy protections that all federal agencies are to comply with. Um, one of the sort of most important things that I think um, is this notion that federal agencies will also comply with the Privacy Act of 1974. Um, as you know, the Privacy Act is a codification of principles um, that really regulate the fair use and practice principles of information. And the presidential memorandum required um, that agencies um, restrict and comply with the Privacy Act with respect to the dissemination of an individual's information that is maintained in a system of records, including personally identifiable information. And it also permits individuals to have and seek access and amendment rights to any information um, that might be contained in a system of records within the Justice Department. Um, and so as part of this presidential memorandum, the department convened a working group. And as Mike indicated, this working group was really sort of um, all of the experts within the department, including the Office of Legal Policy, 
Mike's shop, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, DEA, and all of the major law enforcement components to really sort of take a hard look at all of the issues within the department that were related to UAS use. And so as a result of this working group, um, the department really tried to thoughtfully balance all the privacy considerations with the real need of law enforcement to conduct its, it, its, um, its mission. And so you may not, as, as someone had mentioned earlier, necessarily agree with the policy, but, but I think it's important to note that careful consideration was paid to balance these, um, these questions. I mean, obviously there's sort of this big brother factor when you think of UAS use in this um, constant surveillance state, and, and that's a real fear and a real concern. And it's something that the department really wanted to make sure um, that when the department was using these UAS and systems and also serving as a standard for state and local law enforcement to make sure that certain privacy considerations were baked into to these programs. So within this policy, it requires the department to review its UAS policies every three years. Um, and that's something that's important because as Mike mentioned, these technologies, you know, state and local law enforcement are looking for the new, the new toy, what's gonna be obsolete in three years. So that's a real important privacy protection that's built into this, um, this policy at the department. In addition, um, we will only collect information that is consistent and relevant to the authorized purpose. And within the federal law enforcement, um, folks will understand that that means to use the least, the least intrusive methods of collection. So if there are other alternatives that are not as intrusive as UAS collection or use, um, that that's the method that you need to go with. Um, and as Mike indicated, you know, just because you've got this new toy, you can't just you know, deploy it over a field to see what's behind the field, but you really have to have a an authorized law enforcement mission and need and the authority to collect that information. In addition, one of the other important protections for the, the DOJ policy is that it, limit, li it eliminates, um, eliminates the dissemination um, that is not consistent with law. So if the department um, collects information on someone, um, those, those collections cannot be further disseminated without um, protections that are built in. And if it's within a system of records, that's even further um, limited and construed by the Privacy Act. And then one sort of really important thing, and I, I think um, you know, folks have touched on this before, is it prohibits um, that the department not violate any First Amendment um, right, or that it not discriminate against persons on the basis of ethnicity, race, gender, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity. So this policy is really sort of um, carefully constructed to ensure that um, law enforcement can't just hover over a gathering of individuals who are protesting, um, and, and you saw this in the Freddie, Ga Freddie um, Gray case, um, sort of the groups of individuals that are freely exercising their First Amendment rights, and this policy clearly prohibits that. Um, in addition, um, General Attorney General Holder issued a use of race policy, and so this DOJ policy is consistent with that, that provides a pro prohibition on that type of collection of information. And another sort of important mechanism is that we ensure accountability by implementing adequate procedures. Um, within the Office of Privacy and Civil Liberties at the department, we have senior component officials for privacy who are designated points of, of contact within their component. And so that individual has been um, tasked with the job of reviewing every um, 
use of UAS for that component and making sure and going through rigorous standards um, that the collection is consistent, that there are adequate accounting and auditing procedures um, to make sure that this information is not being used in a way that is inconsistent with our laws, policies, and regulations. And I'll just briefly touch on um, some of the, the work and, and the great work that, that Mike has done um, in terms of, obviously, the, the largest presence of law enforcement in this country um, are state and local law enforcement officials. Um, the federal government has a, a sort of smaller footprint with respect to um, conducting UAS missions. So it's really important for the federal government, as I mentioned, to serve as a, as a standard. And one of the things that OJP has done is required that if a uh, state and local law enforcement entity wishes to apply for a grant of funding to purchase a UAS, that they have a policy um, in place and they have uh, a privacy document that has carefully analyzed all the considerations um, before they deploy this. And so we don't have the legal authority to uh, require or to enforce um, and put federal standards on state and local law enforcement for a whole host of issues, including federalism. Um, but we can say that with respect to funding, we as the federal government are going to ensure that you use these in a manner that's consistent with law. Um, before I'm out of time, I, I just want to sort of highlight um, that, you know, these sort of policies and procedures um, with respect to UAS technologies are baked in into our privacy practice. Um, we at the department report to a chief privacy and civil liberties officer who has a direct report to the attorney general and was very engaged and co-authored this policy with the Office of Legal Policy and in conjunction with the other 40 plus um, law enforcement components um, and U.S. attorney's offices in the country. And so this is something that if you don't necessarily agree with, with the use of UAS widespread, um, it is important to note that these issues were carefully considered and thoughtfully presented in a way that considers all of the privacy issues that are attendant with UAS use. Thank you. Uh, can we hear from Tim? Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. The, the dialogue on UAS, drones, remote piloted vehicles, you know, a ton of names you can give to them. I'll use drones because it seems to have become the, the nomenclature, even though we fought against it for years. Um, it's a dialogue that has to happen. Uh, the Cato Institute's doing a great job of raising this dialogue because Everyone comes to the topic of drones with their own point of view. I started with uh, law enforcement aviation 12 years ago, really as part of the DOJ program that was looking at alternative aircraft. And it, frankly, it was because I was the only pilot crazy enough to get in the paraparachutes at the time when no one knew about them and, and fly them. But what ended up happening is I, I, I interacted with a number of agencies across the country and hearing what their missions were, what they were doing. And then we started working through the legal issues through the FAA uh, and through state law issues on the use of these alternative aircraft. And when it came time to talk about drones, one of the things we looked at, and this was probably back in 08, was that for $20,000, we could get an unmanned aircraft system that we could launch vertically, fly for 15 to 20 minutes, had a video that would be recorded right onto a handheld device, and we could watch real time what we were seeing. And it was easy to put up and take down. And so for a lot of law enforcement agencies, it was affordable, and it could accomplish a mission that they needed, whether it was forensics, uh, special response teams, et cetera. And 
the thought was not at that time, we're going to use this to police crowds. We're going to use this to police neighborhoods. We're going to use this for persistent surveillance. But without a doubt, that is a concern that needs to be out there. How will these things be used long term? Um, when we got into the law enforcement role with UAS, one of the problems is there was no regulatory infrastructure to really support this. So we had a lot of problems with the FAA. We sat in a meeting in, uh, in 06, I think it was, in Annapolis. And uh, there was someone from the FAA telling a sheriff, this, this sheriff was down in the southern Texas. He, uh, he was the only sheriff, I think, to wear a black hat in Texas. Everyone else wears a white hat. He wore a vest with a star, and he carried a very large firearm. And he was, you know, about law enforcement. And he, he had great values, a really good person. But what he said to the FAA is, you're going to come down to my county and tell me what I can do to use an unmanned aircraft system that my son can fly without any regulations. And he really could not understand this, this disjuncture between the rules. Why could a kid fly a UAS or an adult fly a UAS for fun, but I can't do it to do my mission? And there was a lot of education, a lot of dialogue going back and forth with the FAA, and the FAA didn't understand the issues. And it's the same way that we've seen the police agencies not understand the issues, that we've seen the communities not understand the issues. And so education is one of the key things that we have to engage in. That's part of what the convener session was all about, was educating what are the uses. When we got into the program, we, we had a, an initial uh, task force that said, list all of the uses for unmanned aircraft systems, and let's categorize, let's rank them in order. And, and the hot topic was SWAT. We want to use it for SWAT. We're going to go into a house. We want to put the UAS up. We want to see what's in the backyard. So what did we do at the time? We had a program that placed four UASs with law enforcement agencies, and it was used a total of zero times for a SWAT team. It wasn't practical for two reasons. One, um, you have to be ready to use this. And so SWAT events sometimes happen quickly, and they weren't able to get on site and really provide the useful information because time is of the essence. The other issue, which was actually more critical, was a cultural issue. Law enforcement, the SWAT team, didn't think to call the tech guys for the UAS. So they would go do their mission, and they didn't think about it because it wasn't part of their culture. So we didn't see it be used. Where we did see it actually come up was about number six on the list, which was forensics. Forensics started to become something they thought, this is really good, a car accident or a, a crime scene. We can launch this up and get quick photos. It'll be easy. And that's really where we started to see more agencies go, to UAS, photographs of critical infrastructure, um, yeah, you have Google Earth. Yeah, you can go get a plane to take a picture of a school. But if you have an active shooter in the spring versus the middle of the winter versus the fall, the foliage makes a big difference around schools about what grounds you're covering and what you can see. And so getting a real-time picture can be valuable. We had the Virginia Tech shooting right around the, the most critical uh, uh, debate over UAS with the FAA. And the law enforcement couldn't understand why they could not put a UAS over the campus of Virginia Tech to locate this active shooter. And, and at that point, I think we finally were starting to understand there could be a value to this. And there could be an operational value. But there are both safety issues, i.e. putting an unmanned aircraft system up into the uh, national airspace. There's also privacy issues. And then there's operational issues. And so that dialogue has been active and ongoing. And right now, I think if you looked back four years ago and read articles or watched the news or, or heard people talk about drones, there was this impression that every law enforcement agency is going to have drones. 
And I would think right now, and I haven't looked in the last month or two, but we're less than 20 agencies have active UAS programs. And of those 20 agencies, the ones that are active are probably three or four. Um, because there's a lot of hurdles. Money, operational issues, the benefit, they're still learning the technology. But as Jay will talk about, and I don't want to just take over his comments, but really where we're looking now is not to be, you know, what's going on today, but what's going to be going on in the future. So as a pilot, you always know where you are currently. What you've got to think about is where you're going to be in the next five minutes or ten minutes. And that's the same thing with UAS. We have to be looking into the future. Where will this go? We think, here are uh, comments about persistent surveillance. Uh, the Baltimore... Uh, Police agencies up there had engaged a program where persistent surveillance. You could put an aircraft uh, over a city for eight hours, and if a crime was committed, you could actually backtrack TiVo, DVR, and find out where the person came from. You could actually watch their vehicle, so you could identify the suspect. That seems to be going pretty far for how much we're surveilling the communities. A UAS can't do that right now. Not the UAS that domestic law enforcement can afford. Maybe a UAS that the military can afford, a predator, something that could have a long um, airtime. But most domestic UAS fly less than 20 minutes. Uh, most of them cannot fly in certain conditions due to weather. Uh, and a lot of them, the camera quality at 100 feet cannot pick up the facial image of a person. For the ones that the law, law enforcement is buying, now there are technologies out there that can pick up uh, more uh, sensitive imaging, but that's not what we're seeing right now. But I think it is the concern moving forward. When does that technology, cameras are developing unbelievably fast. The iPhone 7 camera is far and away uh, a better camera than the, the initial iPhone. I mean, it's not even close. And that's the rapid advancement of technology, and we see that with batteries. So from a law enforcement perspective, the last area I'd focus on is there was a lot of reaction by states to impose regulations. And one of the things that I thought was they didn't understand the technology was you can't use a UAS unless you get a warrant. No law enforcement agency can use a UAS unless you can get a warrant. There was a number of legislation proposed like that. And it made no sense, sense because if you were going to use a UAS over a national park to find a lost person, who do you serve the warrant on? If you were going to take forensic pictures on a public highway from a car accident, who would you serve the warrant on? The reality is you serve a warrant on someone who's got, who you're going to potentially invade their privacy or going to invade their space. So on a home, if you're going to look in their backyard, if you're going to fly over their house, fly over private property, you would need a warrant at that point if you're going to use a UAS. But for the general use of forensics, national park, search and rescue, critical infrastructure, all of those areas, you would not need a warrant. And that's really where we had a problem with legislation coming out, where they didn't really identify how this would be used and how practically a warrant would be used. We also saw states simply put a complete ban on the use of UAS. And again, we understand that. That's kind of pushing the pause button. Let's get caught up on our, on our policies. Let's get caught up on our uh, operational. Let's get caught up in the technology. And that, that is a little bit more... Uh, stomachable in terms of putting a pause button versus putting in legislation that just doesn't make any sense. The last area that's been a big focus is how does law enforcement address civil use of unmanned aircraft systems? So uh, we're seeing a lot of civil use of unmanned aircraft systems. I, I think the most, the, one of the early stories was a, uh, a Chinese national using one up in a, in a power plant up in Connecticut. And the concern was what were they using it for? Uh, we had a uh, reporter use one up, I think, in New York 
when they were trying to land a helicopter for an accident site. And the reporter was trying to get his own images for his story. And again, the question was, how does law enforcement uh, stop, stop that use? And so ultimately, we've been putting out educational papers to law enforcement. What state laws can they use? What are the federal laws on UAS? And how can you go up to someone in a park who's using a UAS that you think is using it suspiciously and say, I'd like to understand why you're using this. Can you please tell me? Is that an appropriate inquiry? Can they go up to someone and say, we're uncomfortable with the fact that you're flying this over all these people having picnics over here. We'd like you to not use the UAS. What law would the law, state local law enforcement use to stop that activity? Could it be nuisance? Most likely not for most states. Can't be peeping Tom laws. And so that's an area that needs more development, more insight as to how do we regulate the use of UAS. Now, the new Part 107 regs by the FAA will help with that. But really, that's an FAA law, uh, that's an FAA enforcement and not a state and local law enforcement issue. And that's where we're starting to bridge the gap, is how does state and local law enforcement help enforce the Part 107 FAA regulations? There's a lot of uh, ground to cover in the future. These dialogues are helpful. Understanding the public's concerns, understanding the law enforcement needs, and understanding the legislature's intent all will be helpful at the end of the day to come up with a framework where we can have technology that helps people, but does not overly intrude on those people. Thanks, Tim. So we have a uh, last, but by no means least, uh, Jay Stanley. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, you know, there are a lot of privacy issues out there. There's a lot of privacy issues I work on, and I, I'm still surprised the extent to which around probably 2010, 2011, the drone issue of all the technologies and privacy challenges that are out there really seems to seize the imagination of Americans. Um, and we saw this very rapid, um, very unusual, if not unprecedented, um, surge of uh, state legislatures taking action on the issue. Almost all of them were either, uh, you know, a coalition of Republicans and Democrats or Republican-led. Uh, you know, privacy is not a very partisan issue. Um, and, um, and we really saw a surge of, of legislation, some of it uh, pretty good, some of it pretty terrible, some of it, you know, in need of improvement. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we supported generally, uh, you know, putting restrictions on law enforcement use of drones because we foresee problems. Um, and, you know, to talk to your point about, the, you know, the warrant requirement, um, you know, I think some of the better legislation, number one, I think most of it has emergency exceptions, exceptions for helping find the lost child in the woods or what have you. Um, some of them also have exceptions for, um, Things like you know accident, you know forensic uses, accident and crime scene reconstruction, um, which they probably should have. We don't really have a privacy problem with that, um, and and some of them are overbroad and probably restrict police from doing too much. But you know, is it such, is it so bad if for once we overdo the privacy and we have to back it up as experience shows we need to loosen those rules a little bit rather than going the other direction? And one of the interesting things that we've seen is that the FAA has, to the consternation of both the private sector drone community and the law enforcement um, community, um, gone very, very slowly in terms of loosening the reins on drone use. Um, and you, know, you talk to people in the drone industry and, and they complain and they gnash their teeth or whatever. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm not a, we're not aerial privacy experts. We don't really have a dog in that fight. But, but one effect of the FAA's going slow has been that there has been this space for a conversation about privacy before the technology is actually in place, which in so many, with so many other technologies, we see 
uh, what I sometimes call policy making by procurement. Um, you know, do we want to have license plate readers on every block in America that, that record where your vehicle is at what time and, and, you know, and records the fact that you were on the corner of 8th and Main at 2 in the morning on this day and what were you doing there? Um, and you're not breaking the law. It's nobody's business. It shouldn't be logged into a police database, and yet it is. And that is a policy decision that in a democracy should be made by the people, but that decision was not made by the people. It was made by some police chiefs who got a grant from the Department of Justice and just went out and bought them and put them in place without, without telling anybody, let alone asking their permission. Um, with drones, that's, in some ways, it's the one surveillance technology where that's not happened because of the FAA's um, go-slow approach, for better or for worse, in terms of uh, the substance of what the FAA has done. Um, you know, what we're really worried about is mass surveillance. Uh, we don't have a problem with emergency uses. We don't have a problem with forensic uses. We don't have a problem, you know, if you have a warrant and you're doing a SWAT raid and you want to put a drone over the house, as impractical as that might prove to be. Um, we're worried that everybody is going to be watched all the time and it will be yet another in a, in a line of technologies that we're seeing now that will do the equivalent for meat space, for physical space, uh, what the NSA has, has tried to do with our communications, which is collect it all, collect everything on everybody, put it in a big database and, you know, just in case we might need it. Um, and a lot of Americans, including those represented by the ACLU, don't want our government um, operating that way and yet there is a real, you know, drones are a very, potential, a very potentially powerful surveillance technology. And so we're worried that they're going to be used for mass surveillance. And that is a use of drones that is both very far away and right around the corner. Um, you know, I think that, that, that a lot of Americans and, and state legislators, state legislators did imagine that within like, you know, two years we were going to be seeing drones, you know, the sky darkened with drones crisscrossing our cities and, 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 and police uses, um, you know, uh, you know, I always knew that it was much further away, if for nothing else, because of the regulatory uh, issues. Um, uh, drones are, are, you know, they, they, the rules around them are very restrictive still. They have to be line of sight, daytime only, under 400 feet, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, uh, and most of the technology can't stay aloft for more than, you know, for more than an hour. Um, and so there are real practical reasons why we're not going to see mass surveillance by local police departments. Um, anytime soon. At the same time, the technology is moving very quickly. Um, we, we all know how quickly technology is moving in many areas of our lives. Um, we, have, you know, we have Moore's Law-like uh, you know, growth in, in photographic technology. Um, and we know that, it, you know that there is a drive in law enforcement towards this collect-it-all mentality. Um, we've seen in history um, law enforcement departments you know, engaging in surveillance of people based solely on their political views um, right up until the recent past. Um, and so there's, there's good reasons. We saw the mayor of Ogden, Utah, a couple of years ago. He wanted to put up a, a surveillance blimp 24-7 looking down on a neighborhood. Um, the FAA shut that down, but, but he tried. Um, and I used to have to explain to people about this company in Ohio called Persistent Surveillance Systems that wants to put airplanes over American cities and... Um, and with, a tech, with a gigapixel technology that can, that can watch an entire 25 square mile area at once. And then the Baltimore story broke, which many of you probably uh, saw, um, in which they actually did that, again, without um, telling, let alone seeking the permission of the democratic population that they are supposed to be serving. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, I think that uh, as soon as the technology is there, and there are, there are a lot of people working on ways to have drones stay airborne for longer periods of time, including uh, sending energy beams from the ground, 
solar, blimps, et cetera. Um, as soon as the technology is there, we know that the Cessnas that are used in this kind of wide area surveillance will be replaced by drones. Um, it will then become much cheaper to do. And um, you know, one of the big dynamics here is that when things get cheaper, they get overused. They, be, they become easy to do, and then they get done, and then they're overused. You know, sometimes people say, Jay, why are you so worried about drones? We've had police helicopters for decades. These are aerial surveillance issues are, 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 are well settled. And the fact is, because a police helicopter does cost uh, millions and millions of dollars, there, are, there, there is a natural limit on the extent to which it will be used. It's not likely to be flown over, you know, it, it, over one neighbor, over an entire city 24-7. And police are more likely to use it where they really need it just because it's so expensive. But when it becomes cheap, um, then uh, we, we'll like it, we'll, we're likely to see it be overused. And there are privacy issues that have been raised by helicopters. It's not as if they haven't existed. It's just that they've been rare enough that it hasn't risen to the level of the attention of, say, state legislatures. Um, you know, unfortunately, we can't really know whether we're going to have legal protection from, um, from aerial surveillance. Uh, the law, as it exists, ten generally tends to indicate that you don't have a right to privacy from aerial surveillance. Um, there was a case called Sorello in which uh, uh, the police thought this guy was growing marijuana. He had a high fence he couldn't see in his yard. Um, so they just got a plane. They flew over it, looked down, saw the marijuana, and arrested him. The case went to the Supreme Court, which said anybody flying over the property could have looked down, so the police do not need a warrant in order to look uh, to spy on you from the air. Now, and there were some other cases uh, you know, involving businesses and so forth. Um, but the, what the courts did not really contemplate was 24-7 persistent surveillance. If the police had had a blimp that had hovered over a private person's backyard for days and weeks and months on end, you know, the, the court left open whether that would inculcate the, um, the Fourth Amendment in, um, in ways that, that, that uh, an overflight did not. Um, and we saw in this case Jones v. U.S., which was a GPS case, the, the government put a GPS tracker on a car for several weeks um, without a warrant, went to the Supreme Court. The government argued, well, you're in public, you have no right to privacy. Um, and it was a complex decision, but, but a majority of the court's members said, well, this is a search when it comes to the Fourth Amendment. Um, the, the persistence and the long-term nature of it does change the calculus here. That was the, the, the Supreme Court just beginning to stick its toes in the water of this big question, which is, do you have any, expect, you have any privacy rights at all in public? Um, um, we think that you, you should have privacy rights in public. Obviously, when you're standing on a street corner, you can see people, they can see you, no, no, no right to privacy. But you don't expect to be followed around for days, hours, days, weeks, and months on end. And if somebody was doing that, you'd probably seek a restraining order. Um, and if, if a police officer did that to you for no reason, you would call your city council men um, or congressmen, and you'd be hopping mad um, if they didn't have very good reason. So, um, so I think that that is a big uh, unknown when it comes to surveillance technology in the government, what exactly role the Fourth Amendment and the Constitution will have. One of the big things that we're, I'm going to wrap up here, one of the big, just a couple quick more points. One of the big things we're afraid of is that the government will be watching everybody with drones, but won't let individuals use drones. And so it will be a one-way mirror that we often see in the surveillance area. We watch you, you can't see us. Um, and you know the, the security risks from drones are real. Um, people can do a lot of bad things with drones. And I th unfortunately, I think we're going to see it. And that only um, increases the concern that security will be used to block people from you know, using drones to photograph government, you know, police and other government um, actions. 
Uh, we've already seen some, some legislatures very broad restrictions on drone photography around quote unquote critical infrastructure. There was a bill in New Jersey that you know, the critical infrastructure included like the New Jersey Turnpike. Um, uh, and so you know, that's something that we're keeping our eye on. We are worried about the, 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 the effect that the registration scheme will have on police power over drones. You know, um, sir, you need to take that. You need to take that drone that's that's uh, monitoring our police. You know, uh, you know, uh, our policing of this demonstration down so that I can verify that it has a registration number engraved on it, um, which is a power that the FAA has. I think again, it's totally, it's kind of unclear given to local police, um, and then. Um, finally, there's so many, so many things I could say, but let me just, uh, I'm running out of time, let me just conclude by saying a word about armed drones. I think it's fair to say that in the drone community, the people who are seriously working and thinking on drones, that it's kind of, uh, there's a consensus that dr armed drones are, 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 um, are a non-starter and should not be pursued. That said, um, I'm not sure how long that will hold. Um, we, um, we think that uh, we are vehemently against any kind of use of armed drones. Most of the discussion has been around um, so-called uh, less than lethal, which really should be called less lethal um, uh, weapons like tasers, tear gas, et cetera. Um, we think that's a terrible idea. Again, it becomes too easy to deploy. It's inevitably going to be overused. Um, and also, when you're acting at a distance, you don't have the same situational awareness, and it's likely to be used sloppily. Um, of course, there was a lot of attention in Dallas around the use of a non-aerial robot to kill an active shooter, um, which created a lot of discussion. Um, and here, again, I mean, obviously, if you've made a decision that somebody is, needs to be taken out, it, we're not going to say, well, you have to do it by hand. You can't use a robot to do that. You have to risk a police officer and do it by hand. You can't use a robot, because that would be silly. Um, the problem is, is that if you're using a robot, it becomes much easier to take somebody out. And then the question is, are those decisions going to be made too lightly? Um, again, when things become cheap and easy, they tend to be overused. And that would be our, our big concern around armed drones when it comes to lethal use of drones. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could, I hope we can discuss. And uh, I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, well, thank you, Jane. Thank you, yep. everyone else. Uh, we do have some time for questions. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I can take uh, a few questions. Uh, my colleagues will hand you all a microphone. Uh, please wait to be called on. We do have some people watching online. Uh, announce your name and affiliation. I'd like to remind the audience that uh, questions are sentences that end in question marks uh, before we get started. Okay, so I see a question from the uh, woman in the front here. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, my name is uh, Tulinda Larson, and I have my own firm that I just started called Skylark Drone Research. Um, I was at the FAA first Drone Advisory Committee meeting, and uh, part of the committee's work was to set aside the privacy issues from the FAA's uh, discussions. Uh, do you guys view that as the right decision? Should FAA set aside privacy issue for other agencies? Sure, yes. Yeah, I, through my work with the law enforcement and the FAA, the short answer is yes. The FAA are not experts in privacy. Um, the people who were working a lot on the UAS were aviation safety inspectors, air traffic control inspectors, um, technology inspectors, et cetera. They don't have a background in privacy. And, and really, if you look at our federal government, they have 
FAA is not tasked with privacy. That's not their realm. The DOJ is, and the DOJ has stepped into that realm and is starting to do the educational components. So um, I would agree, and, and Jay alluded to it, a byproduct of, of kind of the slow regulatory process has been, um, part of it has been a chill from privacy. So when the, when the skies were going to open up to drones, there was a lot of concern. The FAA took a lot of heat on this about you should be dealing with this because of privacy issues. And what the FAA did is they didn't really address the privacy issue as much as they just kind of slowed the train to allow everyone else to get on board the train to move forward. So in the long run, the FAA should not be the agency that implements privacy regulations. They should be the ones that maintain the, national, the safety of the national airspace. That's their responsibility. They're the best in the world at it. Hands down, no dispute. We have other agencies in this government that are far and away more intelligent and, and, and better at privacy, and those are the agencies that should be doing it, and that's the partnership of government. That's the, the agencies working together, and that's what we should expect of our government, and I think we're seeing that on the privacy side. Yeah, and one other thing is, you know, it, I don't have an opinion on whether or not that should be the role of the FAA or not, but um, that wouldn't preclude um, other federal agencies from implementing their own privacy structure. So even if the FAA did decide to issue some sort of privacy guidelines or guidance in that, in that realm, um, other federal agencies and law enforcement um, could also issue their own that may in fact conflict. Um, so I think that's just an important um, piece to remember in your question. I would just add, if the FAA doesn't think that they're going to get into the privacy, they at least need to leave space for the rest of civil society for America to address it um, by, for example, um, not putting in place rules that, 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 that foreclose um, localities, states, et cetera, from addressing the issues in the ways they want. Uh, we have time for another question, if there is one. I see the gentleman at the front. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nart Chekham. I'm in the video business. Uh, you didn't mention tethered drones. These cheap drones that can fly 20, you know, half an hour. When you tether them, they can fly 24-7. The only problem is that they're not, they're restricted as far as where they can go, but they can stay up there for as long as you want them to be. So. We've actually looked at uh, tethered UAS. In fact, the fire department in New York is doing a test right now using tethered UAS when they respond to any three alarm fire or greater to give them situational awareness at a fire scene. The FAA has regulated that tethered UAS is the same as UAS. As long as you control that, that aircraft, you can move the aircraft, even if it's limited by a tethered, it's still a maneuverable aircraft, still has a maneuverable payload of a camera, presumably. Um, so they, they regulate just like that. Um, the reason that for the Fire Department of New York that tethered was, was something that they thought would be more beneficial is because it basically locked the aircraft into place, essentially, in a Class B airspace or a very, very busy airspace. Um, and which made the FAA happier to let them use it in Class B airspace and also gave them that greater ability to stay up longer because it's powered through that tethered line and it also has a, a, a camera line goes to that tethered line. Um, I think there's a lot of practical uses for that. We've looked at a technology we've, we've, where we, we, we hope to see the technology. We saw basically vaporware, but uh, somebody showed us a, uh, basically, it was basically like a hat box that goes on the back of a patrol car on top by the light bar and the ability for an officer to drive into a parking lot where he's got a call, a call that, you know, suspicious people in there or somebody breaking into cars, he could launch this UAS up 30, 40 feet that's on this tethered line and just, you know, and turn around and look and give him that kind of situational awareness he wouldn't get just sitting in his patrol car. And then when he's done, he just hits a button and it goes back down into that, that hat box or whatever on top. 
I think there's a lot of practical uses for tethered UAS or tethered you know, airborne systems. Um, the only thing is we haven't really seen the technology there. And even in the fire department of New York is playing with a company that's out of Boston. I can't remember the name of the company, but the, it, it, it's coming along. DOD is doing a lot of work with tethered UAS or testing tethered UAS. And I think there, there's some good applications for it. Well, we have uh, unfortunately come to the end of our time for our first panel. Uh, please give it up for our guests. Really appreciate it. <laughs>